And we'll turn now to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 and um, read that in its entirety. I don't have a page number for you if you don't have a Bible, but you'll see there are NIVs there. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, so either way, follow along. Um, this is a kind of a comp- complicated chapter to, to read. Uh, there's a lot of names, and they're all weird. There are a lot of weird names, and I don't say that to apologize for the Bible. These weird names are part of the inerrant, inspired Revelation we've been given, these names are profitable for teaching, for proof, for training up to righteousness. This is the Word of God. Um, but I do say it to apologize in advance for how I will butcher the pronunciation of some of these names. That was one of the things I was going to do yesterday was take about an hour to work on reading this aloud. And I just mentioned to Tom right before the service, I said, you know what, I never did this weekend. So, we'll... With the Spirit's help, we will uh, get through, I'm sure. But let's give our attention now to Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The next... And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimot, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshelzebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joiada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, the son of Basodia, repaired the gates of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatia, the Gibeonite, and Jedon, the Marathnathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah. The seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired as they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumphath, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush. The son of Hashbaniah repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the Dungig. He, he rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhotze, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah 
of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, this is a different Nehemiah, by the way, a ruler of the half-district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, uh, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the Has district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half district, um, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Etzer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from. Uh, the buttress to the door of the house of Elishab, the high priest. After him, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishab to the end of the house of Elishab. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beyond, beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palel, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard after him. Badiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living at Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Thus far, the reading of God's inerrant word. Well, last time, it was two weeks ago that we were in Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah completed the necessary... Um, um, work in preparation for getting to what we're at in chapter 4. Uh, he, that preparatory work included surveying the damage of the walls and sketching out a plan uh, for what exactly needed to be done. But you remember, more importantly than that, more importantly than uh, surveying the walls, he was surveying the citizens. He, uh, more than preparing to rebuild, he had to prepare to restore the, uh, the citizens. Um, he couldn't do it on his own. He needed to get these dejected Israelites back up on their feet and ready to set their hand to the mighty task that lay before them. That's how chapter 2 concluded. You remember, he renewed their faith in Yahweh. This is how he got them to be excited about this mission. Um, he says in verse 18 of the previous chapter, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So he says, God sent me, but not only that, Ashuharis, the Persian king, or Adaxarxes, sorry, Adaxarxes, the um, Persian king has also sent me. 
And the point was, well, of course this must come from God if our own captor king is giving you permission to rebuild one of his subject's cities. And so the response comes, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. And so that's chapter 4. They rise up and they build. And um, I want us to see that it's because Nehemiah said this work comes from God that the people answer, let's rise up and build. That really is the fundamental answer to why the men of Jerusalem finally get to work. Two questions we'll look at this evening. Why did they work and how did they work? First, the why. First, the why. Um, And, you know, in terms of gospel logic, really what we're talking about here is the indicative, and then we're following up with the imperative, indicating why they did what they did, and then there's this um, how they did it, an imperative for for how they uh, are for us to reflect them. So remember what I say in this first section because the latter portion of the sermon is going to emphasize uh, the imperative, what we need to do. And I don't want anybody coming up and saying, well, you really made us feel like we have a lot to do. Remember the first part of the sermon, okay? So don't forget. Um, so the funda- fundamental answer to why the men of Jerusalem finally get to work, um, and the answer is faith. Faith in God and faith in God's promises. They had been lacking such faith, but Nehemiah has instilled it within them once again. They believe once again that God would do what he had promised to do through Jerusalem, and so they get to work rebuilding it. And now the question is, well, what did God promise to do through Jerusalem? What did God promise to do through this particular city? And the answer, everything, might sound like a bit of an overstatement, but maybe just a little bit of an overstatement. Maybe just a little bit of an overstatement. Not really, though. All of God's promises for his people, in some sense or another, center upon this city, this literal city, this location. Most importantly was the promise of a messianic king. In 2 Samuel 7, it's in Jerusalem that the Davidic dynasty was to be established, the dynasty through which God would bring an ever-living and a never-leaving king. The Messiah would come from David... And he would sit on the throne of his father forever. That covenant made in 2 Samuel 7, though, includes this promise. God says to David, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So along with the the promise of the Messiah is the promise of a place for the people to live with this Messiah. And that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place. The place where the temple representing God and the throne uh, representing uh, God's king. Uh, They all come together. God's presence and God's uh, Messiah, God's king and all of God's people dwelling together. That's in Jerusalem and only in Jerusalem. And of course... Uh, the temple and the throne, it's not like we can draw too strict a dichotomy between the two. Like, the temple represents the spiritual world, and that's where God's a part of things. And then the throne represents the political, governmental world, and that's where the king ruled things. Because what do we learn in the Bible? The king that would sit on the throne is God. Psalm 24. We sang a portion of it just a moment ago. It teaches this clearly. Verse 7 of Psalm 24 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Open up, right? Why? That the king of glory may come in. And then the question, well, who is this king of glory that needs to enter into the city of Jerusalem? The Lord, Yahweh, is the answer. Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's almost too good to believe. And so the psalm asks the question yet again, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So Jerusalem was the place where God would dwell with his people as their king. As their Lord, as their God, but yes, as their king as well. And so, if we keep that in mind, perhaps now you're able to uh, uh, sense the existential despair plaguing the Israelites in the days of the exile, right? That's where Nehemiah's ministry in the days of the exile, where the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and all the rest have come. They've taken them away. Uh, now, Persia's taken over Babylon, so they're under Persian rule at the moment. And um, they've, they've removed them from their city. And it's more now for the Israelites. It's not just that they're homesick. They are homesick. It's not just that they're sad that their beautiful city is, is, in, is in an ash heap, although that's sad. It's that these things, the fact that they're not at home or that their home is destroyed, say something terrifying about God's promises. Because God's promises were centered on this city. Centered on this city. How will the king of glory come to rescue his people and reign over them? How will the king of glory come in when there are no gates to lift up their heads in the first place? Do you see? This is the, the crisis they're in. If there are no doors to be swung wide open for him, how will he enter in? What will he enter into? And so the many psalms that we have that extol the city of Zion do not do so out of nationalistic zeal, but religious fervor and religious hope. I'm going to read a number of passages for you. You can write them down. You can try to uh, keep up with my sword drill here. But we're going to see how Jerusalem is tied to the hopes of ultimate salvation. Not nationalistic zeal, but, but ultimate religious hope. Isaiah 59.20 A Redeemer will come from Zion. Salvation will come from this place. Paul takes Isaiah 59.20, a Redeemer will come from... Oh, sorry, in Isaiah 59.20, it's a Redeemer will come to Zion, but Paul takes it in Romans 11.26 to be translated, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. And we read this earlier in our service. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? For the same reason you might take a... Um, a a field trip or um, an excursion uh, to tour Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Boston. No. We're told in Psalm 48 why they should go about and look at the city. It says that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The city and the city's God are intimately linked. You look to Jerusalem and you see God. That's how it worked in these days. It wasn't about the city itself. It was about the God who promised to make his presence known and to send salvation from that city. That's what mattered. 
or we have Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Well, why pray for peace for this city in particular? Why pray for safety within her walls and towers? Because the city of Jerusalem was a monument to the promises of God. If the cities fall, does that mean God's promises fall? That's the fear. That's the crisis the people in exile are dealing with. The cities fallen. Does that mean God has fallen? So what do you do when the towers have been brought down, when the ramparts in rubble and the gates are destroyed by fire? Do you despair? Those living in the time of exile certainly mourned. They mourned, and rightly so. You remember Psalm 137. Maybe the saddest song in the whole Bible. By the waters of Babylon. Do you remember this? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We're there at the beautiful river in, in Babylon. It's not our river, though. It's not our river. Oh, we sit there and we weep. We think of the Jordan crossing over that river into our promised land, into our homeland. It's not mere homesickness. It's near hopelessness. Because if Zion is destroyed, salvation is lost. It is as critical as that. It's as serious as that. If Zion is destroyed, salvation is lost because a Savior will come out of Zion. But God had a promise for a destroyed Zion, too. During the time of the exile, he raised up men like Jeremiah to preach to the people. This is Jeremiah 31, 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower Hananel to the corner gate. Well, that's what we read in chapter 3 tonight. Nehemiah has come, standing there in the city, uh, or, or what's left of it, to say that the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it. And deliver it, he will spare and rescue it. That's Isaiah 31. And yet, Nehemiah says, God will do this, but you need to pick up a hammer. You need to get to work. He will do this, but he does this through you. And so the fact that the citizens arise and build, it's a sign of faith, renewed faith. They had lost that faith for, for over a century Now they believe all over again that God hasn't failed them, that salvation will come for them, indeed for the whole world, out of Jerusalem, as God had always intended. And so their faith was not in vain. Because you know what we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks that proves that their faith is not in vain? We are going to celebrate the fact that indeed the Redeemer of the world, the Savior of the world, the Messiah from God, entered into this city, riding upon a donkey, in fulfillment of all of God's promises. He enters into the city. He goes through the gates that are rebuilt in this chapter, Nehemiah 3. The donkey trots over the, 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 the stones that have been paved in this chapter, Nehemiah 3. A Savior came to Jerusalem so that a Savior could come from Jerusalem. Has He come to you? Do you know this Savior? Tonight, I want you to know that you don't have to build anything for him. You don't have to buy anything from him. You just have to believe. And when you believe, what the Bible tells us is that we are actually brought into this salvation city. We don't need to make a pilgrimage. We don't need to make this trek 
over to the Middle East. We can stay in Kalamazoo, and it can still be true of us that we belong to Jerusalem. Yes, that's what the Bible tells us. If you're a Christian today, you're a citizen of the Jerusalem, which is above the, the city of salvation. And this is what Jesus himself says. He says that the only way to be saved is to be a part of that city from Revelation chapter 3. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. For the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will write my own name. This is what we're stamped with as believers. Three things. The name of God, Yahweh. The creator, the maker of all things. The covenant God. The name of our mediator, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We belong to him. It's stamped upon us. I will write on him my own name. But also, the name of the city. Jerusalem, Zion. Again, it's not about nationalistic zeal. It's about the plan and purposes of God being fulfilled. Salvation comes out of this city. And when you put your faith in Jesus, he puts you in that city. And he marks you with the name of that city so that nobody can say, you don't belong. You say, no, it's written right here. In marks of indelible grace, my God's name and the city of my God's name, the new Jerusalem. And so hopefully, uh, this has been a bit of a a survey, a biblical theological survey of of what's going on when we talk about Jerusalem and Zion. Hopefully that gives you a bigger theological vision for understanding this section of Nehemiah, which, of course, in the face of it is difficult to read and therefore kind of confusing to understand. And one of those chapters where, as you come to it in your daily Bible reading, you go, and Nehemiah 4, right? But now if you have this bigger understanding of what's taking place, uh, you can appreciate why the writer would go through such pains and lengths to record every single person who's at work. Why? Because this is the biggest deal in the world to them. The king of glory will come into this city. Lift up your heads, ye gates, so the king of glory will come in. This is the record that the city has been rebuilt, that the gates can be lifted up, that the doors can swing wide so that the Savior can come. So that's why they work. Secondly and finally, though, notice how they work. And we want to pay particular attention as it can inform the way we ourselves work. And, of course, to properly orient our application, uh, in in my final few points here, we need to keep a couple things in mind. Now that the hope of Jerusalem has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ, what Jerusalem stood for, which is the presence of God and uh, amidst his people, that is now expressed in the church. That's in the church. So what we're reading about in Nehemiah 3, now that we have this bigger biblical theological vision of what's taking place, uh, we want to apply how they work to how we work in the church. Even though uh, there maybe are helpful principles that can be applied to work in general, we're going to be looking about what it means for us as a church. A second prefatory comment is that... Um, we are going to see the people of Jerusalem work heartily. Work heartily. Work hard and work heartily. And I want you to keep in mind that we should work uh, even harder than they. We should work 
even more heartily than them. Why? Because salvation has already come. There's no fear in our labor for the Lord. No doubt that it's for nothing. Those are the thoughts that could have gone through their heads, especially as we're going to see next week that Sambalat and Tobiah and the rest are trying to kill them and, and end the work. There's no fear in our labor for the Lord. Why? Because we live in light of Jesus' great declaration, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So now, as we seek to build up God's kingdom, we know, well, it won't fail because Jesus has promised that it won't. We get to be a part of his work, thanks be to God, but the work doesn't rest on our shoulders. The Israelites worked in the hopes that the Messiah would come. We get to work in the unflagging confidence that the Messiah has come, and that means we should work all the more diligently. And so with those comments in mind, notice three things about the how of their work. First, they consecrated their work. They consecrated it. We'll look back to verse 1. It's no accident that the work begins with the priests. See there, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. The sheep gate is that gate which is nearest the temple um, and was called that because... uh, they used that entrance to, um, to bring the sheep in to be slaughtered for temple worship. They started here because this is the greatest need. For Jerusalem to become a holy city once again, a place where God can meet with his people through uh, the reconciliation offered by the temple system, that means the temple needs to be restored. And so they start right there with the sheep gate. And having completed work on the gate, notice it says the priests consecrate their portion. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Did they pray over it? Did they pour oil upon it? We don't know. But the point is that they set their work apart for the Lord. And in the words of one scholar, by consecrating their part of the work right from the beginning... The priests set the tone for a project that will restore a holy city. That is to say, the whole work is to be done to the Lord. Not just what the priests do, but what everybody's doing, because this is a spiritual task. And this is how we should think of our work as well. Certainly, the work we do in the church. It is a sad day when men and women use the church as a guise for their own agenda, a stepping stool for their own fame. And we have seen that happen time and time again in the public eye. And of course, what happens is that those leaders uh, fall and have moral failings, and it's then a scandal for the church as a whole. But what we do as a church, what we do as a congregation community, whether it's our building search, whether it's our preaching, whether it's our um, helping people in need by making a meal, whether it's our outreach efforts, we had our outreach team meeting earlier, whatever we do, there must be one ultimate reason that we do it. To please God. To glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 We always make it our aim to please Him. Otherwise, what are we doing here? If that's not what we're going to be about as a church, why did you even come tonight? And I would say, if that's not what we're about as a church, don't come tonight so that I don't have to come either. And I can just hang out at home. That'd be a better way to spend my time if we're just going to be all about man's vision, if we're going to be about man's schemes. 
But the church is so much more than that. The church is about God's vision, God's plans. We get to be a part of that. That's why no matter what we're doing as a church, we do it to the Lord. And when we're doing it to the Lord, it's worth doing. You hear that? When we're doing it to the Lord, no matter what it is, it is worth doing. The same idea could be said even for our non-sacred activities and endeavors. The things you do throughout the week, the nine to five, washing the dishes, the homeschooling the kids, the laundry, the yard work, you name it. It is work. It's labor. But labor done to the Lord has this lifting effect. It has this lifting effect, right? When, when you're facing a daunting task and you just don't feel like you have the energy, you just don't want to do it and there's just nothing motivating you to do it. Well, maybe pray something like this. Lord, let me do this for you. And in recognizing I'm going to do this task, which to me is boring or it's arduous or it's intimidating, whatever it might be, Lord, let me do it for you. And in knowing that I'm doing it for you, would that give me a desire to do it? Because if we're doing it to the Lord, what could be better than that? What could be, what, what, what's a better way to spend our time than to say, I'm going to, I'm going to carve out this hour where I have to do this project. And I'm going to say this is a time for me to glorify God in my work. And if it's for the Lord, then we do it with excellent excellence. Wouldn't it be great if we could say that about the dishes or fixing the neighbor's car or whatever else we dread? This is the biblical way to view things, friends. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Three times Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do. George Herbert, the great English uh, poet, has a marvelous text that speaks to this. Here are a few lines. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. All may of thee partake. And nothing can be so mean or so, so small, so trivial. Nothing can be so mean, which with this tincture, for thy sake, will not grow bright and clean. And I like this last verse, especially. He says, a servant with this clause, the clause being for thy sake, a servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. Would you like to make drudgery divine? You maybe are uh, awaiting some drudgery tomorrow. Back to work. Well, if you say, this is for thy sake, it will make drudgery divine. The poem, interestingly, he calls it the elixir. This idea of working under the Lord for Herbert, doing all things for thy sake, for God's sake. For Herbert, it's like this magical formula that turns anything, even sweeping the floor into gold. Well, these... Uh, citizens here in Nehemiah 3, they consecrate their work. Notice, secondly, how they collaborate in their work. They collaborate. Remarkable cooperation exists among the range of workers. There's the priests in verse 1, the Levites, verse 17. There are district officers, you'll note that, who are in charge of various um, regions. That's verse 9 and 12. Goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants, so people with various callings and abilities. Also notice that it's Men 
and women. There's one, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. It says he and his daughters. It's all different kinds of people, all sorts of callings, and yet what we're told repeatedly is that they work side by side. In the first 12 verses, the phrase that comes up again and again and again is next to him. And next to him, so-and-so did. And next to him, so-and-so did this. After that, then the phrase is after him, which means the same thing. So next to him, after him, the idea is they were working side by side. And this is a picture of the church. Why does the Holy Spirit suffer to record some 50-plus names, many of which I could barely pronounce, in Nehemiah 3, why not just say, well, the whole city came together? Well, because the scripture here is emphasizing that in the Christian collective, the individual still matters. We, yes, we're part of a church and we are one body, but that doesn't mean we lose our individuality. The individual still matters. You still matter. Our union to one another by virtue of our union to Christ does not swallow up our individuality whether that be our personality, our gifts, our abilities. So uh, Paul gives us the new covenant equivalent of Nehemiah 3 in a number of places, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to turn there now with me as we're going to read 1 Corinthians 12. This is essentially Nehemiah 3 under the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 12, and let's pick up at verse 4. And I want you to take these words to heart if you feel like you don't have a gift, if you feel like it doesn't matter, maybe you have a gift, but there are other people serving, so you don't need to use your gift. No, 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 no. No, the church is a collaborative work. Verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as one body, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of that one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Many parts, and I'm looking out at them now, but one body, and I'm seeing it before me. We're all called to pitch in. Every ministry of the church should be viewed in one sense as an all-hands-on-deck kind of ministry. 
Oh, maybe you're not called to preach. But you can pray for preaching. You can pray for the preacher. Uh, maybe you're not called to be a deacon. But you could give to the diaconal offering, to the mercy ministry of the church. Uh, maybe you're not called uh, to be a helper in the nursery. But are you willing to stand and to greet people, to make them feel welcome, to make a meal uh, for someone, to help on our outreach team, to do what you can? Nobody gets a pass on participating in this work. In fact, in verse 5 of our text, Nehemiah 3, you might have noticed there's only one group that's, that we're told did not partake in this citywide project. And it's put there to, uh, to their shame and for us, us as a warning. Verse 5, next to them did the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. The elite Tekoites would not literally bend the neck, would not bend their necks to pick up a hammer and to help out. That was beneath them. Somebody else could do that. Uh, certainly they had better things to do. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been like a Tekoite leader, uh, sleeping in instead of helping with a move, coming to an outreach event, suffering those uh, 15 minutes uh, there and back to drive to prayer meeting? Well, somebody else will be there. Somebody else will do it. Friends, when we think that we have better, more important things to do, over against the life of the church, I want you to know and to hear me very clearly that there is nothing better to do than to join arm in arm with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to do the work of ministry. Nothing better in all of life. Well, finally and briefly, notice how they consecrated their work, they collaborated their work, but then they completed the work. The final verse of our chapter, do you see, it brings us right back to where we started. We're back at the Sheep Gate. Uh, so that's, uh, we're given the picture of this work presented in its entirety. They work the whole way around the city and they get back to their starting point. Uh, they've made the whole way around the perimeter of the city. Uh, the, the verb repair is found in nearly every single verse. It was a total work. Now, Chapter 3 kind of presents it as done, and now the, we're going to go back in time, starting chapter 4, and we're going to see some of the setbacks they had along the way. But first, the, the author wants us to see, Nehemiah wants us to see, no, the work was completed. He gives us the big picture. God's promised restoration is fulfilled. The city is rebuilt. The Holy Spirit does not leave us on the edge of our seats, guessing throughout the book of Nehemiah if God's plan will succeed or not. It will succeed. It does succeed. And it does so through the faithfulness of God's people. God has given you and I work to do as well. The work is right in front of our faces. You don't need to go far looking for something that you can do in service to God. Did you notice that throughout the latter portion in particular of this chapter, that the builders of Jerusalem worked on the portion of the wall that says right by their houses, right by their homes? Well, that means... You know, they would step out each day and they would see a portion of the wall that was staring at them across the street that needed to be fixed. This is what we're going to do. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I can do what's right here in front of me. There is something that's staring you in the face that you need to set your, your hands to. Something you need to get to work at. And you don't need to, to um, get on a plane and go to some third world country to say you've done work for the Lord. 
There's something right in front of your face. And maybe it's fanning into flame the gift that God's given you, working on your relationship with your spouse, uh, ministering to the children of this church, giving your time to help the elderly here, uh, finding ways to be of civic service, not in Lansing, not in D.C., but in Kalamazoo, in your own township. But of, co- of course, most immediately, the thing that's right there in front of us that we can't escape is the work we need to do on our own heart. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. And so will you serve God until the work is done? Will you serve God until your time is done? There is no retirement from laboring for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it shows us um, the faith of your people and your promises. Now that those promises have been fulfilled, that the city has been rebuilt and Christ has come and in doing so has opened up the heavenly Jerusalem to those who have faith, would we work even more heartily here in the church? Would we be inspired by their example uh, to, to consecrate all that we do to you, O Lord? Would we seek to work um, uh, side by side, arm in arm with our fellow church members, complementing one another with all of our gifts? And would we not cease working until... The labor is done, Lord, or until you call us home. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.